0: that's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. DDW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.
0: Welcome to this edition of Practical Prepping Period. Coming to you live from the foothills of North Georgia, I'm your host, Randy Powers. Now let's see what we can learn from one another. Hello, members of the Preparedness Nation, and welcome back into another edition of Practical Prepping Period. I am your host, Randy Powers, and man, I'm talking quickly this evening because I really want to get into the meat of the show. Tonight we have somebody with us uh, who you will probably, if you spend any time at all, uh, reading  … books in the post-apocalyptic genre, or if you've already stuck your toe into the pool of preparedness, you're probably going to recognize my guest this evening. Uh, That would be Mr. J.L. Bourne. Now, J.L. is a retired military officer and a national best-selling author of the horror series Day by Day Armageddon and the dystopian thriller Tomorrow War. Um, He has 22 years of active military and intelligence community service behind him. Uh, And he brands a realistic and unique style of fiction, which is the reason uh, that I have been with him ever since I first discovered Day by Day Armageddon. Currently, J.L. lives on the Gulf Coast, but sometimes you can find him toting a rifle and a knife in the rural hills of Arkansas where he grew up, and I completely understand that. And like I said, now remember the books here that I've mentioned, Day by Day Armageddon, you may be familiar with. And if you are listening to this show for not the first time, you will know that this is the first time I've had a a guest on who has written uh, a zombie-based novel. So for those of you who have been hanging around wondering where are the zombies – uh, well, I have just the guy on with us this evening. So without spending any more time bumping my gums, I would like to welcome Mr. J.L. Bourne onto the show with us this evening. J.L., how are you doing? I'm excited.
1: I'm happy to be here, uh, and I'm happy to be interacting with all of your listeners out there. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, no problem. Like I said, I uh, I consider it – a really, really cool opportunity to have you on the show with us this evening. Um, and I don't know, this is just kind of popping into my head right now as I'm thinking about it, but it seems like here – I'm in Georgia, uh, and you are also along the southeastern coast. And this year seems to sort of had uh, a bit of a tough time getting started with spring. But I look out my window today, and I can tell by the pollen that's that's messing with me that it looks like we might actually be on our way to spring. And I think it's really cool to have you on the show here with us because when I read uh, Day by Day Armageddon for the first time… That was one of the cool things about that book for me, and we can get into this more later, but it was the fact that as I was working through that book and thinking about the scenarios you had laid out, I was like, man, I need to get out and try some of this stuff. So when I look out the window and I see that spring is here, it makes me feel good because that means that maybe it's time to get back out there and get camping and get hiking and, and get back into uh, the nuts and bolts of what it re- what's required to be a successful Uh, person when it comes to preparedness. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that before we get into it too much further? Well, I'm still
1: sore from uh, being on my hands and knees getting my garden ready, so uh, I can definitely uh, get with you on that. i I got a small urban garden in my backyard with uh, six grow beds, and it took me a while to get that planned out and and put the sweat into that to get that going. So I definitely know what you mean by springtime and getting outside and getting ready for uh, your preparedness for the springtime. I'm definitely with you on that. My next big project is to learn uh, the lost art of canning that my my uh, late grandmother knew all about, but I didn't have the foresight to sit down with her and talk to her about it. Isn't that, that that's something? There, some of the uh, our grandparents know all
0: about that stuff. Uh, you know what? We are going to have a wonderful conversation because I am actually uh, I took that same path. Um, we we also have a nice garden in the back here, and like I said, because of the weather. <coughs> It's been slow getting it in this year, but um, a few years back, we did the same thing. We I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to sit down with some of my older family members and say, hey, how do we do this? So I, I, I can't wait to get into that with you later. That's a wonderful tease um, before we get there, but – Again, I'm talking a lot here. Let me give you an opportunity, uh, just in case our listeners may not know who you are uh, completely, even if they maybe have just heard of you a little bit. Why don't you just tell them a little bit about who you are uh, and your background?
1: Okay. My background is I come from a uh, a poor family in the beginning. Uh, My father was born in a dirt floor cabin in Arkansas. And I think I'm the first uh, generation uh, from him, you know, born in the hospital. So I come from a, a poor part of Arkansas. And so I came up that way. I came up uh, not wasting, you know, using what you've got, and being very careful with your resources. And uh, when I graduated high school, I started working in a sawmill. So I, uh, that's my first introduction to real hard work was working in a sawmill when I uh, graduated from high school. And I thought, you know what? This is hard work. This is great, but I need something uh, exciting. I need something to, uh, something different. And so I actually enlisted in the uh, military in the 90s. And uh, after an enlistment tour, a couple of enlistment tours, I earned a college degree and applied to Officer Candidate School and went on to be an, a military officer uh, in the Navy and did uh, 22 years of total service. And working in the intelligence community and working in aviation and collection, uh, signals intelligence collection, and had a great career. And I just finished that up uh, last July. And uh, I thought I was going to be jobless for a while. You know, you have a lot of uh, fear when you have a giant change. When you spent your entire adult life doing something and you get thrown into change, you know, you can't stay in the military forever. Just like you can't, uh, you know, do whatever it is you are doing out there listening to, to me today. Whatever you're doing, you probably can't do it forever. So change will happen sooner or later. So change happened for me in July when I decided to retire from the military. And I was uh, kind of a drift. I thought I was going to, you know, I, I guess I'll just be a full-time writer. But uh, as all of you all out there are listening to this, some of you are very practical. You understand that you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, and I didn't either. So I really didn't want to bet my family's livelihood on my ability to put words on paper. So I applied uh, to be a military contractor and got picked up uh, in that job. So I was unemployed for about a a week and a half before I got picked up uh, as a military contractor <laughs> so uh, it's it's a bit exciting it's been exciting
0: well congratulations for getting back on your feet but I hope somewhere in there you're going to have an opportunity to relax just a little bit maybe that's what the gardening can do for you right
1: oh absolutely the garden's been great uh, me uh, my wife and my daughter we go out and we uh, check the garden a couple times a day uh, see how it's doing and learn a lot from doing it. You know, we've made some mistakes. We've uh, killed a few plants, uh, definitely, but we've uh, figured out a few things out there. And also, you know, I've got enough time to sit down in front of the keyboard and put my thoughts down and uh, work on new projects. So uh, it's, uh, the retirement's been good to me. I'm happy uh, to have served my time in the military. But I'm also happy to uh, hand the reins over to some of you younger, younger ones out there, younger men and women out there, to take my place uh, in the military to, to take the reins and, uh, and keep, us, keep us going out there.
0: Well, it certainly is a special breed that answers the uh, call to service, and and I mentioned it to you before, but I and all of our listeners, I'm sure, will join me in saying thank you for your service to our country, um, because consider. 22 years, uh, I mean, clearly that's a generation, you know, and when you make the call to uh, the younger generation, um, I I just don't. Regardless of of your viewpoint on things, uh, service is something that we talk about a lot here, uh, but service is something that I believe that we can all find a way to get on board with, right, because if nothing else, we look at it as a way to uh, be the change you want to see, right? And so uh, it doesn't matter how you choose to serve. uh, Service is something that should be commended as far as I'm concerned.
1: I think some of the, my most uh, fulfilling service has been at uh, soup kitchens and things like that in the local area. So if you're out there and you're wondering what you can do, I think that's a great start. I like to go and uh, go out there to the soup kitchens and feed the less fortunate folks, spend some time with them. It's a humbling experience. It makes you really appreciate what you have.
0: I, I agree completely. Um, as I said, that's something that we talk about a lot, actually. Um, I actually have a small initiative through my – um, preparedness uh, Consulting work That I launched a, a year or so ago Maybe it was two years ago now um, That is entitled Nation Makers And essentially what that is Is when you look around in your community I mean those of, of us Who are like you and choose to wear The uniform in service uh, To our country or uh, As um, our local Responder, EMS, police uh, Those type of individuals who wear the Uniform You um, it's obvious to see that they are working in service of their community. But there are so many others, uh, like librarians or school teachers or people who work at uh, nonprofits nonprofits and, and help those that are less fortunate that are also in service. And the Nation Makers Initiative is a way for us as individuals to recognize those people and say, hey, I see your work and I appreciate what you're doing uh, to help make our community a better place. So. Um, I personally appreciate you putting in a good word for service because it is something that we believe in. Well, so, you know, it's I'm, just important I'm out there. I have cough. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had a, a little cough there. Go ahead.
1: <clears throat> Make sure – got to test that cough switch out. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I've got uh, – I think that's – it is important out there. It's good for you to get out there and do do things for uh, people other than yourself. I think that uh, it, it makes you more sane to to ground yourself and center yourself Uh, On things like that, on things like that.
0: Well, before we get too far into it, because we're about to shift gears and and pick up some speed here, uh, I would like to go ahead and put the phone number out there just in case there's anyone that would like to call in and ask you a question, or um, heaven forbid they have a question for me, they can ask that as well. Uh, But if you'd like to call in, you can reach us at 347-884-8266. And uh, we may be in the middle of a conversation, or JL may be giving an answer. I try not to interrupt our guests, so if you call in, please be patient. I'll get you on as soon as possible, so just hang on the line with us, okay? Um, So JL, as as we pick up speed here, as I mentioned, we're going to get into this. Now, you you laid out your background, which I find uh, actually quite fascinating because I didn't know some of that stuff about you, Uh, and I was interested to hear that it – in in ways it parale- parallels um, my upbringing, but we can get into that later when we get into uh, the books a little bit more. But um, you mentioned that you did military service and you you got an understanding of what it was uh, to do hard labor, right? To under- you understood what hard labor was, um, and I'm sure that helped frame your outlook on the rest of your life, right? When you went on and did your other things but along the way you chose to try your hand at writing you chose to become an author so i'm curious what that process was for you how did you make the decision that you wanted to try to be an author um and since you've had some success uh, what would you even if you hadn't but certainly you've been fortunate to have some success um what has that experience been like for you uh, from the author's chair right not from the military man's chair or can you even separate the two
1: well uh, writing for me is is a lot of fun it's something i do for fun it's uh a, it's a, i've always seen it as a part-time job a part-time hobby uh, you know I, I always think the difference between a, uh, a profession and a hobby is one of them makes money and one of them just makes you happy so i've kind of been fortunate like you said to have something that kind of does both those it makes me happy and it makes a little bit a little bit of money so What made me want to do it? That's your first question. And I think that what really made me want to do it is I was reading um, a novel, a couple of few novels over a a training period I had in the military, and I thought, you know what? This is is, is okay, but I I think I I can describe this a little better. I think I've got a little more to say here, so I think I'm going to try to to write a novel. So when I was in a training period in in the military uh, for a period of a few months, I sat down and wrote Day by Day Armageddon. And uh, I didn't know anything about publishing. I had no idea. You know, I didn't think I was a writer. I just wrote it for fun and posted it for free on the Internet back when uh, people still looked at blogs and things like that. And uh, instead of getting on Facebook, you know, pre-Facebook, uh, people actually went on the Internet, looked at blogs, and, uh, and, and did things like that. So I, I put it for free up there, serialized it, and released it weekly and daily sometimes, and it gained a, a crazy following. So I thought, you know what? I mean, this is getting insane. People are actually reading this uh, by the thousands and thousands. So why don't I just go ahead and publish it? So I, I did a lot of research, figured out how to publish books back in the, uh, you know, in the 2000s, in the uh, early 2000s, and I published uh, day by day again. I self-published it with m- myself. I didn't have a publisher, and then it started selling so crazy that uh, it, it became, it got on the radar with the book scans. If those of you out there that don't know what the book scans are. Uh, there's a book scan methods for publishers to see how well certain ISBNs are doing, how well they're selling. Well, Day by Day, Armageddon started selling so well that it started getting the attention of, of publishers, and I started getting some phone calls. Hey, we'd like to uh, buy your manuscript. Let's talk. Well, that road eventually led to Simon & Schuster, a publisher out of New York. They bought the rights to uh, Day by Day and published me through uh, Simon and & Schuster, and that's when it kind of exploded uh, where I, I got a little bit more mainstream out of that. As far as my, my advice, your second question was what do, what do you think, you know, about writing and what, what what about that aspect of it that people out there might want to hear that want to be writers? And I think the the biggest thing is you got to write something that someone wants to, to read, someone that someone wants to listen to if you're an audible listener out there. You've got to write a compelling story is the number one thing because you may write a story that you love and you think is great, and I commend you for that. Anybody that writes a novel uh, spends their time to write 80, 90,000 words. That's a great accomplishment. But when it comes to selling it, you've got to write a story that's compelling, that people find interesting, relevant, and that they want to read. And then you've got to monetize it in a way that's fair to uh, your customer, your reader, your precious reader, because it wouldn't be uh, a business for you if you didn't have your precious readers out there that want to spend their money on a story that you've created from your mind. And that's the biggest part of it is your readers.
0: Well, I, I'm certain that we would all agree with you there, uh, because I mean, anybody who's ever tried to put words on a page, right? I mean, if nobody's going to read it, then there you go. It's just for you. Um, so the reader is the most important, and it's happy. I'm happy to hear that 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 factors into your process, right? Um, because one of the things that uh, I had always heard, well, actually, I had heard two things said uh, when people asked why did you choose to be a writer. Um, The two responses I hear most often are, well, this was a book that I personally wanted to read that had not yet been written, and so they felt the motivation from that. And secondly – and this is the one that generally kicks people in the pants – it's the voices in my head just wouldn't be quiet. Like I couldn't leave these characters alone. Um, I I kept going back to it. Did, Did you have anything like that happen with you when you started Day by Day?
1: No, I didn't have any voices in my head. That's that's a funny way to put it, but, you know, I'm not knocking anyone that says that. That's great if that motivates them to write. I really didn't. I I think my motivation for Day by Day was, to be quite honest, there was one part boredom. I was being, you know, underutilized, so I wanted to use my time, and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to write a novel. I think I can do better than what I'm reading. I'm going to give it a shot. That was my real main driver for Day by Day, and honestly, I didn't think it was going to sell one copy. It was just a, a flow of consciousness from me on the paper uh, that was, uh, in the beginning, hastily edited. And it was just a flow of consciousness of one person, how they would be in a, in a zombie apocalypse. It's like you picked up their journal one day and you read it. You're out there uh, you know, going through some junk in that post-apocalyptic Texas, and you find a journal, and you read it. And that's what the original Day by Day of Armageddon was, was a raw handwritten journal. And that's what I wanted it to be. And I, had, I did not expect it to sell even one copy. And uh and the funny thing is even to this day I have trouble looking myself in the mirror and calling myself a writer. I think it's funny when I say it. I'm just a person that puts uh words on paper and sometimes uh, people like it.
0: Well, that's cool and and the thing about uh day by day and I mentioned this before the show, this it it was uh it got me hooked. Um the thing about it that got me hooked was the format, right? It was exactly what you right. described and and that is exactly how um I Really sort of came to feel comfortable with the book because um, my buddy and I – I have a a friend who is also a military officer and uh, who is an LEO, and he was telling me – I asked him one day uh, had he ever read it. And he was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, I've read it several times. And uh, I'm like, really? Me too. Uh, And we both settled on the fact that it was the way it was written. It was in the format. Like we, we could fall back in, even though we had read it several times. We could just fall right back into it and enjoy it all over again just simply because of the format. Uh, is that something that maybe you've heard from, from more readers than us, or is, or is that unique to us?
1: No, I've, I've heard that one more times than, than you might think. And another one I've heard, which I'm not sure how to assess it or how to analyze it. I've heard people that hated reading. I just completely couldn't stand to sit down and read a book. They found my uh, my writing and my format not intimidating. They found it welcoming, and I thought that was interesting uh, that people that typically didn't want to sit down and read a novel could sit down and read day by day. Maybe uh, maybe it's just the, the the laconic and simplistic way that I wrote that book. I don't know. Uh, and I, you know, I certainly wrote it because that's the kind of thing I like to read personally. I like to read something like that, like you said, straight and to the point. And, uh, and honestly, I've never been, and not to get too into the weeds on this, I've never been a fan of, of, um, uh, of, uh, grossing out just for the sake of grossing out in books. And some people right. appreciate that. And, and, and I've never been a fan of just, you know, sex in your face in books. I think you, I personally, you know, people might enjoy that, but I personally think that, that, uh, not putting that in books, not using that as a crutch in your, in your writing. And that's, that's kind of the principle that I follow is I don't put a bunch of of, of sex and books, and I don't, uh, I don't put gore in there just for gore's sake. Doesn't mean it's never going to be in there, or it's not in there. I just don't do it for no reason. I don't do it for a shock value.
0: Right. Well, you know, it's very interesting to hear you lay that out for us because, again, I've, I've uh, read the series, so um, I can think back, hearing you mention those things, to points in the books where uh our fearless hero would be like and that's all I'll say about that you know or uh, there's yeah. no need to get into that further or whatever and when when i say those sentences sitting here now it doesn't work at all you're like wait what uh, but when yep. when you're reading the book and you see him say that you have gotten to know him well enough to say okay i got you but you know and you move on and um i i do actually appreciate that so um you're on the show with me this evening, and again, I want to thank you for being here because I think we're having a wonderful time so far um, i I'm curious uh, I, if you've had any experiences in the rodeo of authorship, right? because you've become uh, again somebody that is fairly recognized, especially in in the genre, and in today's world, there's always a podcast or an interview or maybe a trade show or something like that uh, that may ask you to come and and speak or appear or something. Have you had any interesting experiences um, since Day by Day really took off for you uh, that you could share with our listeners from the circuit, so to speak, of talking about your books? Have you met any super fans or anything like that at all?
1: Some wonderful fans. I kind of liken my fan base to that of, and this is not a, a negative thing at all, I kind of have a cult following of fans that, that really are loyal. They really they really like my work, and I interact with them online all the time. If I get a message, I try to answer it. Uh, I know I, sometimes I get busy and I can't answer every single message, but when I get a message on Facebook or get a, a, a fan mail from my website, I try to sit down every night and spend 10 minutes or so and answer every one that I can. And I think I have a great fan base, and they're very uh, very motivated and very excited and I couldn't, you know, like I said, I wouldn't be doing this today if, if not for my fan base. As far as interesting experiences, uh, you know, I, I don't go to cons that much. Sometimes, you know, I went to Walker Stalker Con in Atlanta with my uh, with Phalanx Press, and uh, we, we went out there as a press, uh, Phalanx Press, and, and we did, had a booth at Walker Stalker Con in Atlanta. And I had some fans show up. I had about uh, maybe a dozen fans, uh, hardcore fans show up out there. And I got to interact with them and meet them face-to-face, and it was great. And, you know, I thought that, uh, that uh, I would meet these people for the first time because I'm pretty reclusive. I don't post a lot of pictures of myself, and I don't, I don't get into a lot of my personal life uh, online. and, and don't, uh, There's not even a picture of myself on my books, if you go look at them on, on your shelf if you have any up there. And uh, I'm kind of reclusive in that regard. So I kind of thought that someone would walk up to me and look at me like, oh, this is you? I thought you'd be six feet tall and, you know, uh, an Olympian but uh you know no they 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 saw they saw me as a person and just that's how I am I'm just a regular guy uh regular guy that happens to uh to write uh sometimes and uh it was great to interact with them but no i didn't have i've
0: never had any like uh
1: any kind of creepy thing happen any kind of weird fan thing it's always been a positive for me
0: well, that's really good to hear um and I, I I'm looking I have the hard copy of day by day in my hand right now, and I specifically wanted um and you you i'm sure you can correct me here about whether or not there's more than one cover uh for the original book, but the one that I have in front of me is the brown cover um yeah. that you know has some splatter on the back and and stuff like that and uh I just wanted to comment on that cover like I love that jacket on that book, um, and for some reason, even though I had already listened to the book on Audible, when I wanted to on a hard copy just to make sure I had it on my shelf, uh, it seems like I have a memory of not wanting to buy a, a cover that wasn't that cover because I had seen it. So I don't know if that was your brainchild or if someone created that for you, but um, I, just, I wanted to give you some feedback about how much I enjoy… That cover, it really, to me, it fits with the story completely. Like it, it just, it's, it makes that package complete for me. Um, Yeah, and
1: that's definitely a favorite cover of mine.
0: Well, moving on from there, uh, we we kind of understand now, you know, who you are and and how you got started into this. So, uh, the cool thing uh, about being on this show for me is that when we read these books, it's not overt and in your face. But there are little tidbits of – I want to call it maybe basic levels of preparedness or ideas uh, of preparedness that are are through lines in the books. right? I mean uh, there are things that you have to count on or that you have to account for uh, if you're going to survive a situation like you lay out in the books. So um, if you would, take just a moment and and share with us… Your thoughts on working preparedness into the book—was it something you did on purpose? Was it something that had to be there because of what the story was? Uh, was it a conscious thought when it came to preparedness?
1: Well, it definitely was a conscious thought because one of the premises for Day by Day Armageddon was to—you know—besides the zombies, I get it. You know, we all know zombies aren't real yet, right? Haha, uh-huh, just a joke. But yet. Uh, you, I wanted—I wanted to make it. I wanted to make it realistic, besides the zombies. I wanted everything else to be as it would really be. Would the government make the decision to nuke the cities? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe if it was a choice between a complete takeover of uh, of the undead and just losing the cities and uh, decimating their numbers in a bid to survive. I don't know. But I wanted to make it as realistic as possible. And I did draw on some of my experience and some of the survival schools I'd been to, the formal survival schools I've been to in the military, uh, specifically uh, SEER school, uh, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school up in Maine, and also uh, what we call Advanced SEER, which is, also, which is the official name of SEER 220 up in Spokane, Washington. So I did draw on some of those experiences, uh, training, uh, survival in the military, in some of these um, books that you're reading here. I used realistic real-world tactics and techniques and procedures so our main character, our unnamed survivor that we never named, could survive out there.
0: So um you mentioned that it's sprinkled in through the books and especially when you mentioned Washington there. I mean this wasn't something that was limited to day by day, right? This this idea, this concept made its way into Tomorrow War also, right? I, I am yes, remembering that absolutely. correctly, right?
1: Yeah. Absolutely, you are. Well, the, uh, the that main seems character like, from Go ahead. I'm sorry. The main character in Tomorrow War is a sheep-dipped um, intelligence community operative, and so uh, some of my experiences uh, in in my career in the military did make it over to that book. I used it to try to add some authenticity to it, and make make the reader be in the mind of Max Max Redacted. We don't know his last name. It's been redacted. If you read the book, you'll kind of know why. So. Some of those tactics and techniques that I learned were in the mind of Max. So I like to put my reader in the character so they can feel like they were the character while they're reading it. That's what my favorite thing to do is to put that reader in there.
0: Well, I think uh, in Tomorrow War – well, definitely in Day by Day, uh, but in Tomorrow War, I got there. Uh, In the beginning – um, when i was uh, i'm thinking of scenes that max had to endure in his seer training in Washington um and how shocking they were and I, I listened to that book a couple of times just to make sure I didn't miss anything and the first time I listened to it those scenes sort of caught me off guard like I wasn't sure what i was what I was in for here and, and then when I listened to it again and of course at that point i had I knew what was coming later in the book, like it it all made more sense to me. Um and since we're here, I, I want to touch on one more thing uh with day by day before we move on completely. Um I, because I do really want to get into tomorrow war. Uh but why zombies? Uh like you said, ha, ha, we all know they're not real. Um but but why is it and this is more of a philosophical question maybe. Uh why is it that you decided to write about zombies? Uh, … in the first place. And, and before you answer, I'll share that in, in my group a common theme is um, people sit, end up sitting around watching a movie or reading a book or something, and they inevitably ask themselves the question, well, what would I do? And that is why they enjoy the zombie thread. right? They They just want to see how different people deal with it. I'm curious why you chose to write about zombies for your first book…
1: Okay, well, you've got real—you got to think about, you know, where the nation was when I wrote *David Armageddon. *David Armageddon was written—sorry, it was written—was uh, <laughs> written a long time ago, a long time ago. Okay, country had just survived a terrible terrorist attack. Some people listening to this weren't even alive when it happened, but 9/11 had happened, and I was about to head off to officer candidate school, and after I finished that. I was in a mind space, you know, post 9-11 mind space. I like to think at least of my time, my generation in this country of a pre-9-11 mindset and a post-9-11 mindset. The country was sucker punched. And we were uncertain. We were afraid for the future. We had changed forever after 9-11. I'd lost a friend at the Pentagon, a friend of mine uh, that I served in the military with. He got got killed in the Pentagon. And uh, everyone was affected. Most of the people that are listening to this probably remember it. Some of you don't, but most of you probably remember that day. And uh, how terrible it was, and we were all changed as a nation from that. And I think that major cultural shifts, major shifts in the zeitgeist, as a result from that terrible attack, did have effect on my my reason to choose zombies. You know, I I, I wanted to put the character in a almost unwinnable scenario, a scenario of dread. And day by day, Armageddon, to be quite honest, was almost an outlet or the uh, the pain of 9/11 for me. It was kind of an outlet, a, a way to, to tell a story and to get some uh, emotions out uh, in that book, and that's in, in David Armageddon. So there's a little inside baseball on, on day by day and how we were affected because it was written uh, not long after 9-11 when it, is when it was written.
0: Well, that is very interesting. I um I had not heard that anywhere before, but uh, I had lived through that day. You know, I, I remember that day and what happened and, and what it was like, and uh, – I really think that's I really think that's a uh, an interesting thought. And actually, my idea about it being more philosophical sounds like it might be right because uh, you know the history of the zombie is one that makes it sort of amalgamous, right? You can kind of pin it to whatever you need it to be. And um, there are a lot of people who, and and this is also tied into the idea of preparedness, right? People get scared and and they want to respond. But it's one of those things that, regardless of what the threat is, right? The the hordes, the Mongolian hordes outside of Rome, right? Uh, Whatever that threat is, is out there. They're coming and they're going to get you. Um, I just think it fits all over the place, and I I really think it's um, very clarifying to hear you say that it had that effect on you so powerfully. Uh, I think that's really cool.
1: Uh, Thank you for that. And, you know, the the craze, I'll call it the zombie craze. You know, for me, I I think the height of it was a few years ago. And I think with the death of George Romero, I know many of you out there know the late, great George Romero, uh, the father of the modern zombie, the modern genre, I think. With his death, I think the genre died with him. I'm not saying it's never going to come back. I'm not saying it's never going to be super popular like it was just a few years ago. But right now, the zombie genre to me is almost in the, in the uh, dwarf stage when we're t- talking about stars, stars that have expended their fuel, and they're just living off of momentum at this point. And that's where I think the zombie craze is right now. It's almost in the dwarf star status where it's just living off the energy that it, that it had before, and it's reaching an end point, and something's gonna, you know we're going to move on to the next big thing what's next, what's next in the zeitgeist that people are going to find interesting and fascinating. That's where we are with that. And uh, rest in peace, George Romero, by the way.
0: Absolutely. Uh, clearly somebody who was ahead of his time in that story uh, telling as well. And, and his story about how that came to be, the original uh, movie you know, that, that launched him, how that came to be is fascinating as well. Um, a low-budget film that changed the world, right? So uh, that's one of those things that, that makes me appreciate... The artistic side of all of this. Sometimes we don't think about it, but but that was a tremendous uh, thing that he brought forward to the screen. Um, Here's a really cool thing, Jail. Uh, We have a question that has been asked through the Facebook event page um, from Adam, and Adam would like to know if and when it happens when the balloon goes up and the rule of law is out. When it comes to putting food and water on the table, just in the first couple of weeks, how far would you go? That chance that the rule of law scenario might be over in three weeks or it may last three years, um, would you worry about regrets that may exist on actions that were were taken early in the process? That's a really good question, Adam. So uh, JL, what do you think?
1: Well, I think that is a great question, and how far it's a two- part question a multi-part question, and the first part of it was, "How far would I go? Okay, I'm a family man. Uh, it was Adam, wasn't it? That was his name? Yes, Adam okay adam i'm a, I'm a family man. So when it comes to providing for my family, I, I think there's no limit on where I would go to keep them safe. There's no limit. so you can you can interpret from that whatever you want to. And under, especially under, you know, without rule of law scenario, there'd be no bounds to what I would do to keep them safe. Uh, insert whatever nuclear option you can think of, and I would go there to keep them safe. Just like most of you out there with the family, all the mothers, the fathers, the brothers, the sisters, you would probably go just as far to keep your family uh, safe and sound. So, uh, you know, we're talking um, post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic road warrior level actions. If it got that bad, I would, I would not hesitate. Uh, would I feel guilty about actions that happen in this scenario? You know, it's hard to think about that. You know, if I did something particularly bad to keep my family alive, of course, you know, we're all human beings. We all have feelings. Uh, I'd like to think that most of us do. And of course, you know, if I had to do something um, particularly nasty to keep my family alive, I'd probably feel a little bit of guilt about it, sure.
0: Right. And uh, a lot of people have asked that question, right? Like, okay, so it lasts uh, uh, nine months of really hard times and steps, things had to be done, right, to make it through those nine months. But somehow uh, uh, something is cobbled together on the other side, right? And now we have a rule of law. Is all that, would that be forgiven? You know, would it be something that would try to be uh, followed up on after the fact? I don't know that there's actually a – I don't know that I've ever heard anybody answer that question uh, very well, right? I mean I I don't know that any of us actually know what would happen on the other side. Uh, I mean I guess this is just me off the top of my head. If we were to cobble together something on the other side, uh, I would assume that maybe we would try to work back towards the founding uh, ideas of the country right which means maybe we could get back to a uh, judicial point of view right where we have a a, a group sure. of people that would sure. look at it maybe i i mean but then what rises to the level of of following up i don't know I, adam that's a really good question
1: it it absolutely is it can go it can go a lot of ways but uh, when you're faced with uh, dire circumstances human beings will generally uh go to any level to, for self-preservation. If you look at the human psyche and the way we think, and there's an old saying, an old tired saying that most of you have heard out there, we're just four meals away from anarchy. And I think that's true in many ways. You know, four mil, missing four meals can drive the average person into do things that they wouldn't do just a day before. And you just got to think about that, the thin veneer of
0: society. That's one of my favorite phrases uh, because I don't think people actually understand That phrase. It seems self-explanatory, but it is—it is so real. And the reason you know that it's so real, and it's not just a bunch of folks wearing uh, tinfoil hats that talk about it, is when you (coughs) have—excuse me—when you have people uh, at the highest levels of our federal government um, who are using the phrase and acknowledging that it exists, right? Um, So publicly. I don't mean in papers or something they'll go out and actually say the phrase and um so it's one of those things that I don't I'm not sure that everybody has a grasp on but um it's one of those things that is there because of the interconnectedness and the complexity of the society in which we live right it doesn't have to be um a zombie outbreak or um a nuclear war necessarily for things to really get sideways, right? You knock one leg out of the stool and things can start to wobble. And before you know it, we're in a real situation. Oh
1: yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and fear monger like we did in 08, but uh, we, we are uh, going down uncharted paths with our national debt and with other things happening in the world. It's a very dynamic place to live. And if you don't have your eyes wide open, if you haven't diversified your, uh, your survival portfolio, and I, that includes, you know, saving for the future, saving your money for the future, and diversifying. You need to start thinking about that.
0: Right. And but when you mention, uh, you know, survival por- portfolio, uh, my immediate thoughts come to what else is in that, right? There's uh, the financial preparedness, of course, but then there's also skill sets and and training and knowledge and all those things, which you touched on before. And I would like to use that and. Uh, the next book, the the, the Tomorrow War series, as sort of our bridge to get into what that was about, because when I read Tomorrow War, um, the in the very beginning, and this is what makes the book a success, I would venture. Uh, in the very beginning, it was maybe two, three chapters in, um, where Max sits down uh, with his cohort uh, in the bar, and she says to him, look, get yourself squared away. You know, and and we're going to go. This is what's going to happen, and and Max is sort of read into what is actually going on. Um, But you had mentioned it earlier in the book. When I was uh, reading that for the first time, I was like, "Yep, yep, yep, yep." You know, like because it touches on the interconnectedness of everything. In fact, that's the theme of the whole the whole book. From where I was sitting, that's the way I read it: is that one thing goes, and then boom, here we we're off to the races. Um, So. Just in case, because it's a little newer, <clears throat> if you will, take a second and sort of introduce our listeners to the Tomorrow War series, uh, maybe what you were thinking when you started that series, and um, then we can get you know into it a little bit deeper on the other side.
1: Okay, so uh, thanks for that opportunity to talk about Tomorrow War, which I think it came out about a year ago, the second one, Tomorrow War 2. There's a couple of them out. So you have Tomorrow War and you have Tomorrow War Serpent Road. So the series has been out for a couple of years. The latest one came out last summer, and it really it's a story that I wrote, and, and I'm not being pretentious when I say this, to shake people awake when they read it, okay, to shake people awake when they read it. The thing I don't like – the thing that really rubs me the wrong way when I hear it is when people say, well, the government has all the power. There's nothing we can do about it if they decide to do X, Y, and Z, or if you are having to be pro-Second Amendment like I am – and I'll, I'm openly and publicly pro-Second Amendment – If you happen to say something like, well, your gun's not going to stop that Predator drone, you can't stop the government from doing this, that if they want to, that is who tomorrow war is for, is is to wake people up and let them be empowered and and know that that the power to me is still like the framers intended it. The power is still with the people of the United States. And uh, for my foreign readers overseas, I want them to read it and think about what the situation they're in and how they can make it better where they're at. It's not… Really, a political statement per se. It's an empowering statement. So let the people know, you know, Magna Carta level stuff. Framers' documents. You have the power. Read the book. You have the power to over over those that, that want to exert themselves over you. So we have an operative, an agent called Max, uh, with his last name redacted, and it's a story of Max's journey through this post-apocalyptic landscape that was brought on by uh, by uh, I don't want to give too much away, but but a very dastardly. Uh, cyber attack think the stuxnet virus that we use well i won't say we that someone used to uh, destroy the centrifuges in iran Uh, think about the stuxnet on steroids that was used that's used to bring down uh, the grid and it gets out of control and does some very nasty things to our grid and to our infrastructure and we have an agent trying to make it right and that's what it's about and you have an agent going to war with a with a post-collapse government and the government is going, is, is pulling no punches to try to to, uh, to arrest and try to, to subvert the population, to put them under back under control, back under a control grid that the uh, that this anomaly has taken away. And we see Max and his group of people resist, resist a, a government that's gone tyrannical, a government with MRAPS, a government with drones, a government with high technology. And uh, I'll leave it to you, um, the reader, to find out what happens.
0: Well, uh, as as just one reader among many, I can tell you that when I first read the book, and there there was a little bit off the top there. There was an author's note, um, which you know I heard, and it resonated with me. And then as I read the book, I wasn't certain that the book was going to match the author's note uh, at the beginning. And then the further I got into it, uh, I can tell you that the point of the book and the message of the book landed flush with this reader uh you know like it 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 came across exactly as you had intended um and that's part of the reason that i i will stick with the series right i want to see where we go and and see what happens so uh have you have you gotten uh, a lot of good feedback on the book do do you think that it's being received the way you had intended
1: well okay the interesting thing about the way the country is is we're very uh, we're very bipolar country right now Okay, we have this left-right paradigm going on, right? And so people like me that are pro-liberty and pro-freedom and just want to be left alone and just want to have freedom and and, uh, and believe in the Constitution, writing a book like that is a dangerous statement in today's uh, in today's landscape and today's authorscape in, in the inter- entertainment industry. I wrote a book about taking on a tyrannical government. Okay, that's not popular with status. That's not popular with with uh, people in the, in the city bubbles that, that live in their bubbles and don't think about anything outside of New York or L.A. I wrote a book that was unpopular in those circles. So uh, it, it's a dangerous thing to do that in today's cityscape and today's uh, entertainment industry to write something provocative like that. It, you take a risk on getting uh, what, what we call blackballed in the industry. And, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to take that risk. I thought the book needed to be written. I thought that the country was in such a shape that uh, someone needed to make, write something like this and, and just tell the truth, and that's what I did. And I'd be lying if I sat here and I say that it hasn't had some negative effects.
0: Uh, just in feedback, you mean, or impacts Well, on no, your I, the, the or... feedback.
1: Well, if you go, if, if people go online and look at the reviews, the reviews are great. You know, hundreds of five-star reviews. I've had, I've had great critical feedback. It's just that. You've got to think about it this way, when you're writing for when you're writing for a big publisher and you're writing for for people uh, when you're writing for a customer that's not just your reader, uh, there are some expectations and some people that that read your work or people that pay for your work may not like the message you're saying. So some people are careful with that. I chose not to be careful with that with Tomorrow War, and I'm just not sure of the effects of that yet on my career. And that's what I'm saying There is I'm not sure. You've got to be careful today if, if you really care about your career on walking the uh, line. And I'm horrible at walking that fine line. I like to tell a story <laughs> without, without censorship, and that's the story I tell. And If I have to do that from my laptop again like I did back in 2002 uh, in my, in my uh, study upstairs in the cave, I'll do that. You know, I'll keep telling the stories how I want to tell them. I'm not going to be controlled or restricted by corporate uh, influences or by social justice warrior influences. That's what I'll say there. Not to get too too confrontational in your podcast, but that's my thought.
0: No, that's completely fine. Uh like I said, it, this is uh it was a message and a story uh that resonated with me and I I was actually happy to see it, you know. And uh when you started speaking, you mentioned when you introed the piece there, you mentioned the right left paradigm and frankly, I'm one who looks at a much much larger picture than the right left paradigm. Uh you know, I that's a place that you can allow yourself to get bogged down, but I, I think there are other things out there that are overarching that could be a problem. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh the debt earlier and things like that. I mean, you know, there are bigger issues out there, but the point of the book um and the way it comes across is one that um I thought needed to be written. Just like you said, uh, it, it landed well with me, and again, that's why I wanted to have you on the show, was to have an opportunity to talk about it. So, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm not. Um, I don't. I don't know exactly how to get into this next question because I don't want to. I don't want to lead you anywhere. Um, but okay. there are certain uh, books that I've read in the past. Uh, fiction, actually, it's both fiction and nonfiction, uh, where it's a work. Um, Not a rebellious work, right? That's not the right word, but more of a powerful work, a statement work uh, that needs to be written. And when you look at them a few years later, right? they're still very relevant. Um, They still have an impact on me as a reader, and you can tell that a lot of the stuff that had been written about has actually come to fruition, right? Um, And that brings me back to the point of not a binary choice here. right? There's a bigger issue. So so, um, I guess what I would ask you is from the author's chair, would you look at Tomorrow War and Serpent Road, and would you consider them a future history of sorts, or is that a bridge too far?
1: I would say it's a cautionary tale. I definitely think it is a path that we could go down. I think that, that Tomorrow War path have, has been delayed by a few years, but it has not been stopped. I think we're still on that path, and I say that because of the, uh, the advent of AI is going to be very disruptive to society in ways you can't and I can't comprehend at this time. I have some thoughts on that as well, AI and also the debt, and also uh, going from a, a unipolar power structure in the world to a multipolar power structure in the world where – I still believe in American exceptionalism. I truly believe in. I believe we're exceptional, but that's not what the world believes any longer. No one is buying that. People don't believe in American exceptionalism uh, like they used to. So we're going into multipolar power structure, if not already in a multipolar power structure. We have AI coming online, which is going to just turn everything upside down. I promise you that. And then we have this insane debt. And people just flooding, uh, you know, into cryptocurrency and out of cryptocurrency. Instability in the markets—it's going to continue.
0: I, I would agree. Um, I, as I mentioned, I, I think the debt is a is a is an issue, right? That um, uh, I don't know. I heard somebody joke once upon a time, uh, and there's a black comedy sort of thing, but but they were like, "How do you repossess an empire?" Right? I mean, if, you, if you're indebted to others around the world, what does that look like when when they call the receipts? You know, how, how does that play out? Uh, does it turn into a more volatile situation, or or how does that work? You know, um, so that's one piece of the the problem. But I also look at things like resource depletion and and things like that as we move into the future, say the next 50 to 100 years. what is that going to look like? And you overlay that with um, just global population and things like that, right? I mean, uh, they become – when there's a stress for resources, uh, that's where you have conflict. And you can look into the Middle East or Africa and see those sorts of things uh, play out in a lot of situations. So as, as you put it earlier, it is certainly uh, a very uh, – you didn't use the word interesting um, – uh, time to be alive, but it is certainly a time to be paying attention to keep tabs on what's going on out there. Excuse me. Um, We – I don't know, man. I love these books. I don't want to keep you here all night, JL. Uh, We could just keep going and going. (laughs) I I appreciate you taking the time to be with us, Uh, so I will try to kind of bring us into the station here. But uh, we sort of touched on it with Tomorrow War there, and uh, other than just entertaining your readers um in the way that you've done now for gosh, when was when was Day by Day originally published? Two thousand three? Two thousand four?
1: Two thousand three I think was the first cover, the first the first edition.
0: Uh, oh, okay, two thousand three. So uh, late late I believe. So for the last fifteen years you've been entertaining readers and, and putting the good word of preparedness out there uh, and helping them see the bigger picture. So one of my questions is well, how has that impacted you personally? right, over the last 15 years. Uh, Clearly, you're coming at it from a viewpoint of this is what I think, um, but how has that integrated itself into your life? Are you doing anything uh, to get yourself ready for uh, 25 years to come, which I feel certain will not really resemble the 25 years that we've just had? Uh, What are you doing to sort of get yourself ready for that?
1: Absolutely. I handed at this a little bit earlier. Okay, what I'm doing, besides the normal conventional preps that your listeners have heard uh, countless times, you know, the bullets, beans, and Band-Aids, of course, that, that will assume that that's in order in my scenario. Besides that, I hinted at it a little bit earlier. Besides the bullet, beans, and Band-Aids, you've really got to pay attention to AI. You really do, and how that's going to disrupt the workplace. Those of you sitting here listening to this right now, think about what you do for a living and answer the question. Could a robot do it cheaper? If the answer is yes, start thinking about something different to do for a living. You've got to be thinking that. It's happening. It's coming. There's no stopping it. It's not like it was in the 70s and 80s when they first bought those big robots online in the auto plants. Uh, this is going to be much different. It's going to be much more prolific. I mean, we're going to have robots that can do things that you wouldn't, you can't even imagine that are going to replace human labor at a rate that you can't even think about. So as far as what am I doing, I'm saving and investing for the future. I'm not a big spender. I'm very fiscally conservative in my house. I'm saving for the future. I'm saving for a day when I'm put out of work, when when uh, when there's no more jobs. So I'm saving for that rainy day uh, when when you wake up that morning and you no longer have uh, something to do. And I think that your listeners out there should consider that. And, uh, and most people don't have you know a thousand dollars in their savings account, and that's nowhere you want to be in a future when Jobs are limited and scarce. You want to use the power of compounding interest today. And I'm not giving you any advice your grandmother wouldn't give you, but you need to save some money. That's the biggest thing. And uh, this assumes that your bullets, beans, and Band-Aids are already in place and you already have a basic skill set for survival. You've got to hedge your bets. If the world doesn't collapse, it just becomes automated. That's a, that's a possible uh, medium-term outcome in the future. You've got to hedge your bet for that. You've got to also hedge for an all-out collapse. And that's your bullets, beans, band-aids, and skill set. But you also have to think about what the economy looks like, the working economy looks like in the future if we don't collapse. Don't spend all your resources you know, expecting a collapse when you get a head fake, and all of a sudden you're just out of work for a long term. That's what I'm thinking about.
0: Yep, trying to have a skill set that will make us valuable uh, in, the, in the coming world. I, I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the kind of thing that – um, actually, it dovetails right into most post-apocalyptic planning. Right? Is do you have a skill set that would make you valuable if your job went away because of a problem? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I always turn to things like midwifery, and uh, do you know how to you know take care of animals? Maybe veterinary skills or, or things like that. You know, I, I, there there are many ways to be useful. But not many of them are attached to a four-year degree when you look at a future like what we're talking about.
1: You're absolutely right. The uh, the four-year degree, the college bubble, it's real. People have put a lot of money into college, and, and some of them are waking up realizing that their $100,000 degree uh, when they're making 40000 a year was not a good investment. And they're angry and they're upset, and they should be angry and upset. Uh, the college lie is real. Go STEM in college, or just forget about it. You know, I wrote novels. I don't have a liberal arts degree. I don't have an MFA. Uh, you know, I have a master's degree, but it's nothing to do with writing. And I only have a master's degree because I was put through college uh, in the military to be trained up to that level. And uh, I took that, uh, thankfully, took that opportunity and got my master's. But I have no formal training in writing. So those of you out there that want to write and thinking you'll get an MFA or a liberal arts degree to do so—that's uh, that's not the case.
0: Well said. Now, uh, just one more thing here, and you touched on this earlier too, talking about you were planning to get into the idea of canning and preserving the food that you're able to grow uh, and that you have a garden and you're squared away otherwise, let's just assume. So um, I, I would consider that a vital part of, of planning for that next 25 years. Do um, you want to take just a second and, and tell us a little bit more about why you think uh, talking to our elders and and Going back to the touchstones of, of just a generation ago might be important because I know, uh, as I mentioned, that's the sort of thing that we absolutely did. We uh, we started that process back around uh, 2010, and it actually had nothing to do with the economic situation that, that happened in 07, 08. Um, we were among the fortunate who came through that without much of an issue uh, directly, but… It just made me realize that was one of many things that made me realize the resources that I had available to me that I had let sort of get stale, you know? Uh, because I'd grown up sitting on the porch with my grandparents, breaking beans and, and doing stuff like that. And um, I wanted to get back to that because I looked up and realized I didn't remember how to do any of it. So, I went and sought those people out and made that a part of our survival portfolio to coin to use the phrase you coined earlier so uh, if you have any thoughts on that, I would love to hear them oh it's
1: absolutely the, the devil is in these lost art details that we just talked about that our grandparents knew better than us, but they knew how to do it because they went through a hard times. Some of our grandparents were came up during the depression uh, you know. I had one I remember talking to. Uh, she died in the 80s, but she was born in 1902. She had some great stories to tell about preparedness and about remembering when men wore six shooters and rode horses and talking to Civil War veterans. And then my other grandmother that passed uh, last year that was big into gardening and canning. They had so much to teach us that we would just take the time to sit down and talk to them. But I think that's very important to sit down and talk to your elders about the skill sets and things they've used throughout the years. And one scenario to think about is, if you think that, that rolling, rolling in the darkness with your $9,000 white phosphor night vision binoculars and your suppressed M4, you know that's cool. It sounds cool. It gives you an advantage. It gives you an advantage in a kinetic fight. But you won't have to be going through the darkness with your $9,000 white phosphor night vision goggles if you already have the food and the resources. You want to avoid that situation. So I think that uh, getting back to basics, reading some books, on uh, survival and on uh, canning and on just the basic things about food gathering and preparedness when it comes to food preparation and growing food, uh, you may find that you, you knew less than you thought you knew when you sit down with some of your elders and read and read some books on the subject. You may find, like me, like I think now about myself, I, knew, I know a lot less than I thought I did about it. And it's uh, eye-opening to sit down and actually do this stuff in a garden and actually sit there and grow this and, and overwater your crops a couple times and lose some corn and then uh and then realize you know that you you knew a lot less than you did before.
0: Yeah, and I I appreciate that testimony because as I said we started this a few years ago and I took a lot of those same bumps along the way. Um but one of the things I do now with the people that follow me on on my social media platforms is I will share my uh what they love to call my apocalypse library, and some of that stuff has to do, you know, your books appear in those photos sometimes of my bookshelves, but on the entertainment side, but there are there are things in there worth reading, but then of course I have the volumes of real world hard-earned knowledge, um, you know, like Carla Emery's works and things like that that are on my bookshelves, uh, and one thing I learned as I started accumulating those those volumes. Is it is great to have them because I, I don't get to to live that life every day. Like my life doesn't depend on that information today, so it's hard for it to have a permanent residence uh, in the limited bandwidth that is my brain. Um, so I like Absolutely. to have the volume on. I like to have it on the shelf, you know, to refer to. But with that said, I learned in a hurry that if you do not get out there and get about the work of doing it, all of that means nothing. Right. I mean it, it, a, a, a book that has a perfect spine is a book that was a waste of money, right? so if I can't uh, take that information and go out here and actually put it to use on our little homestead, uh, then it's, it's not doing me any good. So if you have those volumes, absolutely go get them. You can find a lot of them for free uh, as PDF forms actually out there too um but there are several that are worth your dollar if you want to go buy the volume but then put it to practical wow. use get out there and try it now one i like that you can put
1: on your web store maybe put an affiliate link on your page or something like that the one i like is uh the square foot gardening by mel bartholomew that's a great one that's the one that really kind of yes uh have you you've read that one too i take it
0: i have i have and i've yeah. read other takes yeah. on it too you know the the concept yeah so I,
1: I'm I'm big into that. I've got the grids and everything sectioned off. I, the reason I was attracted to the square foot gardening method is it's more efficient. You get more uh, more output for your input, and I've noticed that to be the case when I when when I don't become the problem in the garden. You know what I mean? When I do something right. wrong, it all all bets all bets are off. But if I do if you do it right and you and you're doing what you're supposed to do, I think square foot gardening that method is is a great method. And I would encourage if you can get it for free in the library, especially for your listeners out there, to go. Uh, Uh, Check that out and
0: have a read on that one. Absolutely. That's wonderful sage advice. And man, you've been with us an hour. I want to thank you so much for spending that much time with us. But I can't let you go without asking the surprise question that I always ask my guests. And that would be, I am a huge – like I said, my my, uh, sweet spot is post-apocalyptic dystopia. That's my genre. So I would love to know. Uh, What it is or what book – and it doesn't actually have to be from that genre. If it is, bonus points for me. But what book would be your all-time favorite from that genre? What does J.L. Bourne just have on his bookshelf that he loves to read?
1: We're talking the post-apocalyptic non-zombie genre. Is that correct?
0: Uh, sure, that'll be just fine. And, okay. and if, you, if you need to mention more than one because you think it's, it's valuable and relevant, I would love to hear that as well.
1: Well, um, there's a few books out there. Some Heinlein books come to mind. I like Tunnel in the Sky. I like uh, the, the original, the OG uh, James Wesley Rawls Patriots. The, everyone everyone listening to this, I guarantee, if not everyone, 99% of you have read that. That's, that was a great one, the original. Uh, and um, The Stand, of course, by Stephen King, that was a, a probably a cornerstone in my youth reading The Stand about the uh, Captain Tripp's virus taking over and uh, killing everyone. And only a few people survived. Uh, I'll pretend that the, uh, that the on-screen interpretations of it don't exist, but I did like the <laughs> book. And uh, I thought the way that things went down were, were definitely really cool. On the on the other side of it, uh, here's one that you may maybe not have heard of is um, on the zombie side. An obscure one that I thought was very well told and interesting was *The Dead* by Mark Rogers. Uh, very probably not something that many have heard of, but it's a very interesting concept on on uh, zombies and on takeover. It's more of a de- demonic uh, type book. It's really interesting to me, and uh, I happen to trade the emails with the author uh, and. Uh, great guy and writes a great book. I don't I don't know him personally, but I was so compelled by his story that I emailed him and he actually answered me. And I got a little, you know, uh, excited that I got an answer from an author that I liked. Thought that was interesting. Hey. Yeah, nice. Mark Rogers. Mark Rogers, the dead. That's good. And there's there's a few out there. I might post them on your page, um, on your uh, Facebook page for those that are, they go over there and take a look. If they ask any questions, I'll hop over there and see if I can answer
0: some questions on your page. That sounds wonderful. I'd love to see your recommendations. And the one that you mentioned there, The Dead, actually I had not heard of it. Uh but we were talking before the show uh about an author that we both enjoy, Jonathan Mayberry. And oh, he yeah. actually just this week uh asked a question on Twitter. He's like, "Heads up, I would like to know about uh, a, you know, a zombie film or a zombie book that maybe I don't know about." You know, go. And I yep. saw that someone else had recommended The Dead in that question. So I heard of it yeah. just this week, actually. So uh, yeah. I think that's pretty cool. I, I find it interesting, and the cover
1: is just nightmar- a nightmarish cover. I think, from my memory, it's been a while since i talked to Mark Rogers. I think that he did his own cover art for The Dead. It's really just terrifying. And if you read it, it's, uh, it's one of those books that scares you. You know, Not many books scare me anymore, but The Dead kind of scared me a little bit. The only other book to scare me before The with *The Dead was Salem's Lot, the vampire book by uh, Stephen King, and uh, yeah. it's it's terrifying. The Dead is a terrifying book.
0: Well, I feel like we have just been all over the map here, but I think we did it with purpose, J.L. I I have enjoyed having you on the show with me this evening. I, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time and coming to talk with us. Um, just know that you'll always have a home here if you ever want to come back. Uh, We can talk about some stuff uh, that might happen for you in the future. And before I let you go, I would love to give you an opportunity to tell our uh, listeners where they might be able to find you uh, on the Internet. Um, And if you have any projects or anything that you're working on, feel free to let us know about those too uh, because we, just like you, uh, always love when the author responds to us. So if you don't mind, just let them know where they can find you.
1: Okay, you can find me uh, most easily on uh, jlborn.com, just like it sounds, jlborn.com. You, on, from there, you can click on my uh, social media. If you're not big into checking websites out, you can uh, think my my Facebook one is official jlborn. Facebook.com forward slash official jlborn. But jlborn.com will get you there. That will get you to all my books and what I have for sale and, and um, just basic bio and things like that. And as far as what I'm working on, I haven't revealed it anywhere at all. I haven't even talked about it at all. I usually don't like to because it gets expectations up too high. But I will say on your show, for those of you that were faithful enough to listen all the way to the end, I will say that I am working on something new and it's an Audible exclusive. And it has to do with some of the subject matter we talked about in this podcast. So you can guess about what that might be on the, uh, on the page, on the Facebook page.
0: Now that Friends is what you call a tease. J.L., thank you so much for coming on with us. Uh, We'll be looking for you over on the Facebook page, on the event page. Uh, Drop by. He might answer some questions for you, and at the very least, we can check out his suggestions for what we ought to be reading. J.L. Bourne, thank you for joining me on Practical Prepping Period. Thanks for having me. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Practical Prepping, Period, a copyrighted podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. To keep up with everything going on with Practical Prepping, Period, please visit our page on Facebook. Be sure to check out our website, www.practicaltactical4u.com. That's Practical Tactical, the number four, you.com. You can also find Practical Tactical on Facebook and Google+. And be sure to tweet us at Practact, the number 4 and the letter U. So until next time, I'm your host, Randy Powers, just broadcasting from an amazing life. I hope you'll join us for the next edition of Practical Prepping, period. But until then, let's see what we can learn from one another.